This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hey everyone, it's Matt Takamatsu, and today we're joined by our guest, uh, Michael Spratt. So Michael is a criminal defense lawyer and partner here in Ottawa at the firm of Abigail Goldstein and Partners. He's appeared before all levels of court, and he's also developed a broad-ranging criminal litigation practice. So on top of this practice, he frequently appears as an expert witness before the House of Commons and the Senate to provide evidence on criminal legislation and was even awarded the Senate 150th Medal in 2018 for this work. Now, you can also find him offering commentary and criticism on everything law and politics on Twitter and in a number of news publications, including uh, the National Post, the Ottawa Sun, uh, the CBC. And he is also the co-host of the award-winning legal and political podcast called The Docket, which I cannot recommend more to any lawsuit out there. And now finally, in 2020, Michael was awarded by Canadian Lawyer Magazine, as one of Canada's top 25 most influential lawyers. So needless to say, we're very lucky to have him today. So thank you for joining us, Michael. Well, thanks for having me. To start, how about you just give us a bit more about your background? So how did you first find yourself practicing law? Well, I came to it quite accidentally. Um, There was no lawyers in my family, um, no one involved in the legal profession at all. Both my parents were teachers. And I think like all young kids, you sort of only imagine doing what your parents uh, were going to do. So I thought I was maybe going to be a teacher. Uh, I really like science. And I went to, to university and got my undergrad degree in biology and environmental science and only really decided to, to take a, a look at law school in my fourth year undergrad um, when I chose between um, uh, doing a master's in um sort of paleontology and environmental science, uh, doing a study in of underwater coral reefs um, or going to law school. And so I made the, uh, the sensible choice and went to law school, um, which looking back on it is, uh, is insane because who wouldn't want to go and do a, an underwater study on coral reefs and submarines and stuff? Um, but that's how I ended up in law school. And then uh, from there, it's been a, a blur of 15 years. That's crazy. I definitely would have taken the underwater submarine option for sure. Yeah, no question. So would I. Now, outside of your your practice, what can you tell us about the types of uh, legal projects or activities that you're currently involved in? Well, so, I mean, the majority of my time is taken up with like remunerative uh, paid work. Um, And so I'm a criminal law specialist and I only do uh, criminal law cases. Um, some sort of related fields, I guess, some, some sort of human rights cases and constitutional challenges and, um, you know, appearance at review boards and consent to capacity boards, that sort of thing. But, you know, most of my time is taken up with practice. And then I guess times when normal people would sleep or be watching the football game, um, uh, I've got a, a podcast with my spouse, uh, Emily Tamman. Um, we have a show called The Docket. Um, where we talk about sort of the intersection of law and politics and, and you know, analyze cases that have come out and, and talk about issues that are sort of in, in the public consciousness at the time. 
And um, on top of that, uh, I write for a couple different publications. Um, I write uh, uh, twice a month for a Canadian lawyer and then, you know, have stuff in, um, you know, local newspapers and national newspapers and stuff like that uh, pretty frequently. And um, the other thing that I was doing quite a bit, haven't done uh, a lot of that lately, is um, testify um, and provide legal analysis on uh, legislation um, related to criminal law issues before the House of Commons and the Senate, either for organizations or just as an, as an expert myself. But um, that work has actually been a bit slow lately because uh, for the last, I don't know, number of years, this government hasn't really moved forward with any criminal law legislation and certainly not since the pandemic. So um, so that's slowed down a bit. But, you know, I've got, uh, I think, a wide range of extracurriculars can can make you a better lawyer and, and certainly uh, fill your time. And just a quick note on your podcast, I'd urge any law students who are listening to this to check it out. I know I've been listening to it for a couple of years, and it's actually why I myself has, have uh, got into legal podcasting. So please check it out. It's high quality stuff. And I even substitute it sometimes instead of doing my criminal readings. So, <laughs> thanks, Matt. Um, yeah, if anyone's interested in in uh, downloading it out, uh, you can um, find it at sort of iTunes or any of the other places where you get podcasts. I think, um, and you can also find it on SoundCloud and on my embarrassingly uh, titled website, MichaelSprat.com. Now, given that the focus of this episode is on um, community participation and engagement. I just like to start out by asking how necessary do you think that it is for lawyers and law students to show an interest in and, and become active in a community in some capacity, whether it's the legal community that they're a part of or the broader community that they live in? Well, I think it's super important. Um, it's definitely important for, for young lawyers. And I think that it has advantages in terms of, you know, opening up opportunities and sort of, you know, those, those selfish advantages of, of doing things for you. But it's super important to give back to the community. Um, you know, that's something, especially in criminal law, that is a big feature of, of our practice. Um, I mean, like half of my work is legal aid work, which is, you know, not very well paying and, and certainly, um, you know, something that you don't do for the money, um, but is a valuable service to give back. And, you know, all lawyers, I think, should do uh, do a wide range of pro bono work. Um, and then besides that, I think just being involved with your community is good. It's good professionally. It's good personally. Um, and it certainly, uh, I think, fosters a, a broad knowledge set, right? Being able to um, put yourself in, in the place of other individuals in the community, um, especially, you know, vulnerable and marginalized groups um, is really important, no matter what sort of legal field you're in. Um, you know, walking a mile in someone else's shoes is especially important if, um, you know, you come from a middle class or privileged background. If you're a, a, a white cisgendered male, you know, it is extra important, I think, to um, to actively uh, find those opportunities to um, to engage with the community and put yourselves in the shoes of, of people who aren't necessarily as, as privileged as, as yourself. I think that's good for your practice. It's good for your community. And, you know, it's got that side benefit of sort of, you know, opening up opportunities. Um, I'm not a fan when I talk to 
uh, to young lawyers about networking and schmoozing and, you know, these, these Bay Street cocktails and parties and stuff like that. Um, I find it sort of, you know, distasteful and, and just awkward and, and, you know, I don't give any much credit to, to, you know, that sort of involvement, but if you are looking to actually network and actually make those connections, um, I think there's much more productive ways to do it by, by actually engaging in, um, you know, the broader legal community, but more importantly, the non-legal community. And what do you think in terms of transparency of the legal profession? You know, um, you know, lawyers tend to have this negative uh, reputation or stereotypes of being maybe selfish, greedy, slimy individuals. Do you think then um, by becoming involved in the community in some capacity and showing a selfless side of yourself that could build trust? I think so. I mean, I think it's good for um, how people view the profession. We have to remember that um, this sort of view of, of lawyers is a recent view. Um, you know, the, the idea that lawyers are self-interested and, you know, you know, don't provide any societal good um, is something that that is is a recent invention. You know, the, the famous phrase, you know, kill all the lawyers was not because lawyers were despised, but you know, if you want to have a have a, a totalitarian society, if you want to perform a coup, if you want to um, uh, crush people's human rights, um, you need to get rid of lawyers first because we should be. Um, historically, uh, we were, and and you know, I think the majority of us are now um, a guardian of democracy, of uh, of civil liberties, um, and of of you know, respect for for decency and fairness. Um, you know, that perception has changed a little bit. And I think that, you know, some lawyers are more responsible uh, for others. I look to you, Bay Street, uh, who, you know, um, have multi-million dollar office towers, uh, wine cellars, um, you know, and um, seem to feel that, that uh, you should be as rich and important as, as the clients you represent. That's not traditionally um, how lawyers conducted themselves. Um, I mean, hey, take a look at Downton Abbey, right? One of the characters on there was a lawyer and, and wasn't, you know, uh, um, good enough, right? Wasn't wasn't high class enough uh, to be uh, involved in the aristocracy. That's the way that, you know, traditionally um, lawyers, uh, lawyers were viewed and, and lawyers acted. And I think that it's only recently that we've seen, you know, these big corporate firms, um, you know, try to tr- try to you know not only live in ivory towers, but but build these these giant glass tower constructions and, and view themselves as as more important than they are. Um, so yeah, it's it's really important for that reason to to be involved with the community. But I also think it's really important to educate um, the communities that we live in about our laws. Um, you know, criminal laws, civil laws, liability, things like that. These are complicated and really important issues that quite often the public gets wrong, the media gets wrong, and um, sadly, politicians often misre- uh, misrepresent and try to use as political wedges. So we've got to be on the forefront of trying to make sure that, you know, people actually understand our laws and understand the importance of, of uh, laws in, in creating uh, a strong and vibrant democracy. And is this reason, um, the education purpose, maybe one of the catalysts behind why yourself um, have become involved in 
podcasting to a significant degree, um, writing for traditional mainstream media outlets, your your blogs. Yeah, I mean, and and what sort of spurred me into action on that was looking at uh, the criminal justice policy from um, the last conservative government. There was just a blatant misrepresentation of of criminal law, of uh, crime, of um, justice policy uh, for pure partisan and political gain. I mean, we see that from uh, from all political parties, but it was particularly bad under Stephen Harper. And you know that's what what started me, sort of uh, just writing a, sort of blog entries on my site, um, and and then you know when you sort of take your eyes up from your practice, uh, you can see that um, you know there are abuses of power, there is a lack of transparency, and I think that there is an, an intentional fostering of public ignorance um, with respect to. Uh, to you know, police powers and criminal justice legislation, the prevalence of crime, the utility of, of um, penal sanctions, um, and I think that that's sort of an intentional misrepresentation for fundraising for political gain that flies in the face of of the evidence and um, really only serves to um, to continue um, those in in a position of power. And uh, that's, I think, what what sort of got me into into writing. Um, and then, uh, you know, when I was having these conversations with, you know, my mom who was a teacher, or um, my dad who was a principal, or you know, my friends and neighbors, um, there was just a, a profound misunderstanding, but also an open mindedness to to having reasonable, respectful conversations about these things. And I mean, that's what we really try to do, Emily and I, on the podcast. Uh, we, you know, deal with really complicated um, criminal law and constitutional issues, really complicated um, political considerations. But really, we try to speak to our audiences, you know, as I'd be speaking to, you know, my friends on the street who aren't lawyers or to my parents or to my family, because I think it's really important um, that we all know the law, that we all understand the law. Hell, it's a principle that we all know and understand the law, and so I think that's what uh, that's what I try to do um, when I'm talking about it, and you know, mm-hmm. not trying to use you know gatekeeper language or be too legalistic about things, um, but you know, be casual, be conversational, and and try to be as as fair and balanced as possible. So, would you consider that maybe like the preliminary um, first step when you perceive a problem in the community, or maybe where a gap? Um, where there's a gap that something is missing and you there's a problem that you want to address with that education purpose, um, bringing attention to that problem, sort of be that first step in terms of how you would go about addressing it. I'm asking because I'm kind of curious as to when you would maybe start to take action in the House of Commons, that that work that you do. Yeah, so I think my my approach to things has changed a little bit. I'd like to think that, you know, I've matured a little bit and that, um, that, you know, I've become a a little bit better about listening and seeking out information before forming opinions. Um, Certainly, I like a good hot take as as much as anyone. And, you know, I I consider myself to be a pretty knowledgeable expert in, um, in sort of the political and criminal justice fields, especially. Um, but I think the first step um, when I see something that I perceive to be a problem, whether it be the lack of transparency and accountability with police, bad criminal laws, you know, unconstitutional issues with respect to certain provisions in the criminal code, the first thing that I do now 
And this isn't necessarily the first thing that I did when I, when I started being more vocal and active is seek out the opinions of other people and not just people who I interact with or, or not just um, other experts in the field, but um, other people who come from a, a different perspective and have a, a different personal history than I do. Um, you know, I, I can think of uh, at least one example where I've changed my mind where um, because I, you know, went and sought out other information, um, you know, it, it came to different conclusions. That was on police body cameras. You know, I was quite vocal. I wrote uh, op-eds about, you know, how police body cameras were a good thing because we can't, you know, trust the police because we need that transparency and oversight. Um, and, you know, that was a, a logical and reasonable opinion uh, for myself. Um, but, you know, I don't come from an over-police community. Um, I'm not a, you know, a young black man. Um, I haven't been carded before. I've certainly represented a lot of those people and, and engaged in that space. Um, but, you know, there's big blind spots that, that I have, even as progressive as I think I am and open-minded as I think I am, um, I know now better than I did when I started that I've got massive blind spots. And so after talking to, you know, racialized individuals, individuals who work, um, you know, with individuals who have mental health issues and from uh, addiction issues and individuals from over-police communities, um, you know, I spoke to people like Desmond Cole um, on those issues and, you know, I changed my mind completely um, on the issue of police body cameras. And so the first thing that I do now is I try to seek out those perspectives that that I don't have myself, that I can't have uh, myself, those firsthand lived experiences. And then after that, then I think the first step is advocating for change, raising public awareness. And that could be through through writing, through talking in your community, through attending community association meetings, um, uh, through you know seeking out uh, groups who are already engaged so you don't have to uh, redo a bunch of work or step on people's toes or take up space that um, others may may feel better um, and you know advocating for change and that can be through writing through podcasting through you know um, engaging in in you know political conversations with politicians who I know um, suggesting legislation and then um, you know, ultimately uh, fighting out in court, which is where um, I can really do what I do best and bring challenges and and try to uh, try to move move the ball forward in in a way that uh, that I think lawyers are in a good place to do um, because it is hard to bring constitutional challenge and bring about change. And, and I think that lawyers really have a responsibility to, to act as a voice to, to members of the community and not just members who can afford your retainer, but members in general of the community to to try to advance those issues. And I think that that first step that you mentioned, um, taking a step back and, you know, rationally seeking out those checks and balances before you go onto Twitter and take a, you know, a hot take. I think that's very important and it's easy to neglect, um, especially as students. So it's nice that you brought that up. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, um, even more important when you're starting out in your career. Um, you know, I can survive a bad hot take. Um, I think I've built up enough credibility with, um, with experts, with the public, with my followers, with the judiciary, with crowns, with, um, you know, just your reputation that you, you gain from good work over a number of years that I can uh, withstand a bad hot take. I can, I think, make a mistake and, um, you know, have it not follow me around. But, you know, um, you don't want your first take um, or your first public engagement uh, 
to be ill-advised or to be wrong. So I think uh, caution and prudence is always better. Um, and I think that it's especially better when, you, when you're starting out. You don't want your first step to be a wrong step. So what would you say to young lawyers and law students um, who maybe want to stand up and say that they believe in X while simultaneously avoiding coming across as offensive or provocative and help them um, shed that concern that their words might come back later in life to haunt them? Your words will always definitely come back later in life to haunt you. Um, and that's, I think, something that you have to accept if you want to be outspoken and advocate for change. If your main goal is to be appointed as a judge or to be elected as a politician, um, you know, you probably uh, don't want to be so out there publicly. Um, you know, that's one of the trade-offs that, that I've made and, and knowingly made. Um, there's no way in hell that any liberal or conservative is, is going to appoint me as a judge um, and I would expect that no one is going to appoint me as a judge because I have a lot of opinions um, and, you know, I, I live with those. I accept uh, the consequences. And I think that on balance, more good has come from that. Uh, and, you know, I've chosen not to, you know, uh, muzzle myself um, because, uh, you know, I, I might want to be a judge in 10 years or 20 years, or I might want to run for office. You, you see what you get with me and, and that's what it is. But, you know, if you're a student who wants to start engaging in this, I think that, you know, first you have to bring something to the table, right? You have to have some sort of expertise um, and you get that expertise by, by doing, um, by volunteering, by being in the community. Um, and, and so that's what you have to do first because you want, you know, your, your opinion and your words um, to carry some weight to, to, to make a difference. And, and you need to be able to, to back that up either with work and research or with experience. And so I think that that's the first thing that, that you have to realize having an opinion is great. Um, but you know, have you done the research? Have you, can you back it up? Can you cite cases? Can you, um, tie it back to, to policy? Um, and can you bring something new to the discussion? And then, you know, you have to be brave. You have to be bold. Um, and you know, you have to, take that leap and you have to be prepared to, to live with the consequences of that, right? Employers are going to look through your social history feed and you might uh, screen yourself out of some jobs. Um, but, you know, that's, I think, the, the braveness that we need to, to, uh, to insist on sort of the next generation of lawyers. And uh, I think that that's a good thing. Um, but, you know, there is a risk to, to having opinions, right? And you have to be prepared to, to accept that risk and to be able to deal with the inevitable criticism. And how do you deal with that criticism? You mentioned uh, being able to support your position using empirical data. So whether it's online over Twitter or maybe even in the House of Commons when you're an expert witness, how would you handle those critics? Well, I am... Um... I mean, I think I'll say this, everyone has uh, a different style and a style that works for them. Um, and that's, you know, both in engaging with the public and in litigation in the courtroom. Um, some people are analytical, um, are exacting, or are, um, you know, thorough and, and sort of uh, more sterile in their presentation. Um, others are more conversational. Others are more irreverent. Um, 
people might be sarcastic or, or uh, use, you know, other sort of rhetorical flourishes to get their point across. And you have to do what comes naturally and, and what you're good at. I think a lot of long, young lawyers learn that the hard way. Um, you know, I tried to, um, to, to mimic uh, and to, you know, copy the style of, you know, lawyers that I respected in, in the courtroom. And, you know, some of that worked and some of that didn't work for me. Um, so you have to have your own style. And I think you've got to be authentic and, and true to, to that um, in dealing with criticism and, and pushback. Um, you know, you have to be confident. Um, you have to be, you know, flexible and pragmatic at the same time. And so it's a fine balance. I mean, in the House of Commons, um, I'm not afraid to speak truth to power, to call out uh, bad decisions, to point uh, to history and, um, you know, uh, decisions that, that have gone poorly for the government before. I mean, most of my testimony during the Harper years was about mandatory minimum sentences. Um, and I was, you know, quite happy to push back strongly. And a lot of those laws have been struck down as unconstitutional. And, you know, the next time I'm there dealing with a mandatory minimum sentence, um, I will remind them of that. And so uh, that's sort of my style on Twitter. I'm, you know, a bit more sarcastic, irreverent, and, and decidedly unjudicial in my commentary. Um, but, you know, I'd say that it's, it's likely best to, um, to approach those things cautiously, especially when you're starting off um, in sort of public discourse um, and, you know, come in with a recognition that experience can bring wisdom. And especially when you're starting out, um, you know, you don't have that experience and you want to be really, really careful. And so I think it's, you got to do your homework before you double down on something, um, before you criticize something. And um, you just have to make sure that, that you've done the homework to back up your opinion. But once you've done that homework, once you, once you truly believe something, um, you know, I think that you need to be strident and principled in advocating for what you believe in. I'd like to just now focus back a little bit more on the work that you do in the House of Commons. So you appear as an expert witness as both an individual and then as a member on behalf of the Criminal Lawyers Association. So I'm just wondering what's the, the catalyst for you to testify on proposed legislation? Are, are you asked to testify and then you have your time compensated or do you do it simply because you have some type of personal interests that you truly believe in and that you want to represent? Yeah, advocating for change and good policy is never about compensation. Um, you know, especially if you're going to do criminal law or human rights work, um, you know, you're not doing that that for the money. Uh, and certainly there there is no compensation for, uh, for the work that I do on, on Parliament Hill. Um, why do I do that? Because it's really, really, really important. Um, it's not only important because sometimes uh, I've brought about changes in legislation that make it fairer, that make it more constitutional, um, that make it more rational, um, either through uh, amendments or, or deletions or additions of, of certain parts to bills. Um, you know, definitely sort of that expertise in talking to politicians behind the scene has allowed um, allow me to, to influence um, some legislation and, and certainly, I think, prevent some some wrongheaded legislation. But it's also really important because even if 
the the bill isn't changed, even if an unconstitutional, from my perspective, law is passed, that testimony um, will inevitably form part of the record uh, in terms of future constitutional challenges, future reviews, and you know future accountability uh, for the government for for bad decisions. And we've seen that in um, in court striking down minimum sentences and the victim fine surcharge legislation, um, in um, eliminating the availability of conditional sentences, um, in in some wrongheaded sentencing reform. Um, all of that testimony, the answers that um, that witnesses have given, um, the the answers and um, responses that politicians have given in response to uh, my testimony and others testimony have been in in the material that has been used you know years later to, to challenge the legislation and that uh, that has an important function as well you know is less satisfying because you know you still have to deal with the consequences of this unconstitutional legislation until there's a challenge but um, all of that has been uh, very important we have to remember that that the laws that are passed in in Ottawa have real life effects um, on individuals and can be life changing. You know, um, a minimum sentence can mean the difference between someone getting a second chance and someone who uh, is being introduced to you know a revolving door of incarceration and stigma. So uh, so it's it's super important. It, it it's not compensated at all, but I think that it's. Um, it's made easier for me because I'm, I'm in Ottawa um, and, you know, can run up the street to Parliament Hill. Um, but it's, you know, it's fun. It's uh, an engaging work. Um, and I think it's some of the work that I've done that has had um, the most uh, the most impact. So even when you come off a defeat and you don't, um, or what you might perceive as a defeat and you don't influence piece of legislation, in the way that you intended, it's still reassuring for you and gives you more vitality to continue forward, knowing that you're creating this record, this foundation for future work to go off of. And you've actually been seeing the effects of that work, however long down the stream. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. I mean, and like, let's, let's be honest, when there's a majority government, and they've proposed legislation, and um, experts are there telling them that it is unconstitutional or counterproductive or won't achieve the, the, the results that they want it to achieve. Um, there's very little room. Um, as our system currently is for 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 the majority government to actually change their own legislation, um, you know we saw that for for a number of years with the Harper government. We saw it for a number of years with the Liberal government, and so you know most of the time um, you're you're not going to walk out you know achieving the changes that you want. Um, you know there there are some behind the scenes changes you can achieve, and you know there are definitely even even with you know the liberal government, um, sometimes where, um, there have been changes, um, but those sorts of victories are few and far between. And, you know, really, um, what you're doing is you're speaking to the record, um, and you're speaking to the next election and you're speaking, um, you know, to, to all of those future challenges that, uh, that will uh, hopefully be successful because of the information that you've added, or in part because of the information that, that I've added. So if you if you do fail to influence a piece of legislation in a certain way, is there anything afterwards that you might do? Or do you just sort of let it simmer and hopefully future work will build off of that? Or maybe if it's a certain um, 
topic that you're particularly passionate about, would you offer um, some critical commentary of it in the media? Oh, yeah, most definitely. I mean, um, the, the other thing you're doing is speaking uh, to to reporters, to journalists and to the public. And so, you know, if you can't change politicians' minds, if they're making bad choices, ultimately, you've got to try to uh, inform the, the public who holds those politicians to account. And, you know, certainly, um, you know, things that I've said and testimony that I've given um, has been um, used in in media, has been spoken of uh, after on, you know, talk shows um, have been the, the topic of uh, opinion pieces and editorials and, you know, has um, been used um, to inform, you know, the platforms of, of uh, political parties um, in the next election um, has been referenced in, you know, political debates uh, during the election. Uh, if you can't uh, convince the politicians to do the, do the right thing, you know, ultimately, I think you have to make your case uh, in the public sphere and, and in the courtroom uh, to try to bring about the changes and try to, um, you know, convince the public um, that they shouldn't support politicians who are, are making poor decisions. Now, I'd like to just bring our attention um, to the media specifically for a little bit. Has there been a, a particular medium, whether it's Twitter, your podcast, or, or writing articles, um, has there been a particular one that's been most uh, effective for you as a tool in everything law related? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the the most effective tool is um, to produce content and to have people see that content. Because um, ultimately, that's what you want to do. You can write the 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 greatest novel ever, ever, but if it sits in your desk drawer and no one sees it, um, you know, is it really the greatest novel ever written? Um, how how I started, you know, testifying um, and and sort of being more engaged in in the media is um, writing on my own website, putting in the work. Um, and this goes back, you know, more than a decade. Um, you know, I had young kids at the time, um, a busy practice. And so, you know, after my day at work, I'd come home, put the kids to bed, be engaged with the family. And then after everyone went to bed from, you know, 11 o'clock or, or midnight till, you know, two in the morning, I'd write. Um, and, you know, just self-publish that on my, um, on my website. And then, from there, people started reading and listening and um, engaging um, because I think people really are um, hungry for um, down-to-earth, accessible uh, analysis of sort of these really complex issues. Um, and so I think that, you know, just that act of writing and, and producing content consistently um, was the most impactful thing in terms of, of my writing and how I engaged. And, you know, that opened doors, um, you know, that led to, um, you know, when, when, it, when the issue comes up in public, what journalists and reporters do, um, you know, say there's a minimum sentence or say that there is um, a, an issue about a safe injection site or uh, about, um, you know, police abuse and the lack of uh, transparency. Um, the first thing they do is sort of Google those terms. And, and if they can find, you know, a Canadian um, source that has commented on those issues, um, that's where they'll go to educate themselves. And, um, and, you know, I think that just me writing for me, because, you know, that was my outlet and putting it out there, um, 
had had some eyeballs on it and you know that led to to other work that might be sort of more accessible whether it be in you know the the national post or the globe and mail or canadian lawyer and i think that that has you know allowed some space uh, for myself to to comment on those issues but at the end of the day um you know no one's going to give you that space you sort of have to make it for yourself and the best way to sort of make that space is to find something that you're passionate about that will keep you up at night um that is so important to you that you'll you know um, lose some hours of sleep to, to produce content about it. Uh, and you know, that ultimately I think is a gateway to, to, to getting eyeballs. And, and that's how you ultimately, I think, bring about change and, and develop a bit of a, a reputation and presence. And there seems to be a lot of similarity between what you write online and then what you cover in the podcast with, with your partner, Emily, but with your podcast, the docket, it originally started off as like an after hour show of making a murder that that the Netflix series, but now it's evolved into this very well-regarded political legal podcast. So my question is then why the shift? Did you just see it as another untapped opportunity to produce legal information that's easily accessible? You can get into topics that are complex and nuanced and easy for people to digest, or is it more of just a hobby? And you're talking about things that you would necessarily already talk about around the dinner table or around the house. Yeah. So the Making a Murderer podcast, and we also did an after show on um, on the docu uh, docudrama The Staircase as well, um, was, you know, I think what, um, I mean, there certainly are our most downloaded podcasts um, and, you know, received, um, you know, quite a bit of attention and, and was a great springboard to, to sort of a larger conversation about other issues. But if you go way back in the back catalog, you know, you'll find 20 or 30 episodes that I did with, uh, Leo Rusimano, who, um, used to work at my firm where, you know, we talked about cybersecurity and minimum sentences had Michael Geist and, and, um, uh, Senator Baker and a bunch of other people like that on the show. Um, but, uh, I think, you know, ultimately, uh, Leo ended up, uh, leaving, uh, my firm and I was sort of looking for a new host for something to do. Emily and I started watching, um, making the murderer. And I was like, this would be a really great thing for us to talk about because we were talking about it already. Like we would watch an episode and we'd spend like half an hour, 45 minutes, sort of like debriefing with each other about, you know, how would this be different in Canada? How crazy would that fact situation was? What we would have done tactically in certain situations. Um, And like, we've always wanted to do a podcast together. We're pretty, we almost did a reality TV show podcast together, breaking down uh, old seasons of Survivor. Like we just sort of like the medium. We like, we like sort of that conversation. We're, we're podcast people. Um, And the first thing that we did when we're having these conversations is we look to see, Hey, is there a podcast that we can listen to on this as we're going to bed or we're taking the dog for a walk and there wasn't. So we decided to, to, uh, to do one ourselves, um, which was super fun. I mean, we had the lawyers on, we had some um, media personalities on, we, you know, had some of the experts that were called at trial on. Um, So it was a, a fun podcast that led to, you know, some really cool, cool opportunities for us. Um, uh, to engage in sort of that community. And then when that was over, we continued on just podcasting about, you know, the issues that we talk about. 
I mean, like I pity our poor children um, who are now in their, you know, uh, who are now nine and uh, 11 and 14, because when we're sitting around the dinner table, like this is the kind of stuff that we talk about, about, you know, politics, about the law, about, you know, social issues. Um, and so Emily and I doing a podcast is, is really no different than how we sort of talk you know, around the dinner table. Um, the only difference is that we turn a microphone on and I do a bit of editing after. But but I think ultimately we, we wanted and 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 what we continue to want is to have a podcast that's, you know, educational for people, that you don't need to be a lawyer, um, that you don't need to, to be an expert in in criminal law or, or in politics to to follow these conversations. But if you're um, you know reading a a story about drunkenness as a defense or new sexual assault provisions, it's easy for members of the public to have a gut reaction to that. Just like I have a gut reaction to, you know, the latest Blue Jays signing. Um, but I'm certainly no baseball expert and I have to go mm-hmm. seek out accessible commentary uh, about, you know, those transactions. And that's what we try to do, provide accessible commentary to people that um, if they want, can help inform them about, you know, what's going on in Parliament Hill and what's going on in their courtrooms, because ultimately that stuff, whether you're ever charged with a crime or not, ends up uh, impacting you in the community that you live in. And I definitely think that you're achieving that objective. I'm thinking um, specifically that recent Court of Appeal decision, or relatively recently, it's under a year, um, Sullivan and Chan, that case where it struck down Section 33.1, the provision that said if a person commits a violent offense, they can't Um, claim that they were too intoxicated to be found guilty. Now, when that came up, well, you and Emily talked about it. There's a lot of misleading uh, media headlines. And on social media, it created a lot of um, backlash and criticism. And although I I feel like the reaction was based in in good faith, I feel like there's a fundamental misunderstanding of the case. But I didn't know how to articulate that in, in in clear terms without me coming across as provocative or something. So your 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 um your podcast was very helpful in that regards and that you and Emily broke it down very easily, very simply in in very digestible terms. Um and I wasn't the only one that thought that too. I saw your episode get circulated on Facebook by other people. Yeah, it's it's those it's those sort of, you know, complicated decisions that um can at first blush seem like they are contrary to the public interest that they're opening up a Pandora's box um, that you know could cause harm to people. Um, it's easy to to ignore or to not see um, you know the the sort of larger implications, right? The importance of charter values and you know the context um, that you know the Sullivan and Chan case, the the defense of extreme intoxication. Um, arises like rather rarely, right? And so it's easy to, to either overemphasize or underemphasize certain things. And and we felt in that case specifically, it was really important to inform the public because, you know, dealing with issues like uh, drunkenness and sexual assault and violent offenses, it's something that, that you want to get right for, for a number of reasons. And, you know, mm-hmm. it um, actually... It, for a slight preview, our our next episode that we're recording uh, tomorrow, um, we're going to revisit that issue again um, because there was a dreadful uh, piece published in McLean's um, as as the uh, front 
front cover story of the December issue, um, Leah McLaren dealt with uh, dealt with the Sullivan and Chan issue and wrote about it and had some incredibly wrong things in terms of the basics of criminal law and um, the legislative process. So we're going to revisit that, break down that article and, you know, try to um, try to double down on some educational efforts. So these things are ongoing and, and, you know, it, it would be naive to think that, you know, just because um, we talk about something that everyone's on the same page and, um, you know, any uh, uncertainty or confusion has been re- resolved. These are ongoing uh, conversations that criminal lawyers and, and constitutional lawyers and criminologists and experts need to have um, with the public because the issues are really complicated, um, but they're super, super super important when you're dealing with um, constitutional principles and, you know, the potential deprivation of, of liberty in the context of other really important uh, societal concerns like, you know, violent offenses against women and, and you know, how that has been dealt with traditionally. So there are ongoing conversations, which, which means that we're never going to run out of content for our podcast. Yeah, I think I know exactly the piece that you're talking about. It was maybe a couple months ago that was released, right? Yeah, I think it was. It was. I think it was in December, and I I didn't see it until, which is sort of unusual because usually, sort of, um, you know, I, I live in this space, so I see those things. Um, but I didn't see it until Emily Emily flagged it in, in January, and it was just jaw breakingly bad. Um, so. Yeah, so we're going to go back and and talk about uh, that uh, and try to, you know, clear up some misconceptions that uh, Leah McLaren might have left her readers with. Yeah, my my roommate who's also in law school shared that um that piece with me. It was, you know, really long and detailed and honestly, we didn't know as naive law students, we didn't know how to feel afterwards. So, looking forward to hear that on uh Monday or two days. It should be out tomorrow night, <laughs> Sunday night. Out tomorrow night. Perfect. Looking forward to it. Now, just final question, and it's in, it's a question about uh, balance, work-life balance. So how do you balance an intense workload as a criminal lawyer on top of everything else that you do, um, on top of the articles that you write, your blog, um, the podcast, and appearing in the House of Commons? I guess you, you said earlier that you're not doing that as much now, but back when you were. It's a super, uh, super delicate balance, and it's a really important thing to talk about Um, because, you know, I think for a long time, lawyers worked really hard and they didn't see their families. And, you know, especially in criminal law, we have a higher instance of, you know, mental health crisis, of addiction, of suicide, because we deal with some really heavy stuff. Um, You know, I think it was maybe... 18 months or two years ago, I wrote a piece about, you know, a number of sexual assault cases that I did. Um, you know, I just won a really big, uh, really big, hard fought sexual assault case. Um, and, you know, I was sitting at home on a Friday night and I was feeling like shit and I, I didn't know why. Um, and then I sort of started thinking about it and I was like, well, I've done like four sex or five sex assault cases in a row, which are incredibly difficult cases. Um, and, you know, just that sort of work has a toll, like doing lots of homicide work, seeing autopsy pictures, um, you know, dealing with grieving families, cross-examining um, 
witnesses who have experienced loss and trauma. Um, that is all um, super difficult. And so the way that I deal with it is, um, number one, I have an outlet where I, you know, write and talk and vent about these issues. But I also try to have, um, you know, a really good family life, um, which is, you know, important for my family, but it also provides, you know, uh, a support network for myself. Um, so as it's, and it's a conscious choice you need to make because you can always work longer. You can always work harder. There's always someone else who has a problem who, who needs your help. And so you have to choose, you have to make the conscious choice to, um, to come home early, to be, uh, I, I made the choice to be home for dinner every night. Um, I made the choice to to be at home to give my kids baths and tuck them in and read them bedtime stories and be really present in their life to, to spend Saturday and Sunday with the family. And, you know, that means they have to sacrifice other things. So I play a lot less video games than I want to, you know, I do a lot less other extracurricular activities. Um, you know, I've had to change, um, you know, what I do instead of, you know, going out and playing golf for four hours on a Saturday, you know, I'll bake at home with the kids. Um, but you have to make those choices. And, you know, if you choose to come home at five, at six to, to, um, to spend time with your family, it means for me that I was going back to work at 10 or 11, uh, and often working late into the night and then getting up in the morning and doing it all again. Uh, I remember, a. a my first murder case that I did um, as as a junior lawyer with uh, with uh, my boss at the time, Matt Weber. Um, you know, I would be at the office at you know seven thirty or eight to get ready for court. I'd be in court all day. I'd drop my bag at the end of the day. I'd I'd run home. I'd do all the stuff with the family. I'd go back at, to the office at ten. I'd work until one or two. I'd sleep for five hours. I'd get it up, get up and do it all over again and and do that day after day for, you know, two months in a row. So, I mean, these things are hard and um, you have to work at it, uh, but it is really important. So it's hard also, I guess, as, as sort of a young lawyer to uh, create that space for yourself. It's really hard when your boss, um, who, you know, is 60 years old, doesn't have a family at home and, you know, lives at the office. Um, it's hard to say, like, I'm going home now. Uh, to to do these things with the family. I'll see you in a couple hours. Um, but you really have to try to carve out that space and you have to, to make yourself uh, attractive to your employer or to your colleagues uh, in other ways by, by putting in the work. And, you know, that means, sorry, you don't get to go and play golf for, for four hours. Um, you don't, uh, you don't get to, you know, go down to the basement and binge your, your latest show, right? You've got to make those sacrifices. Um, but it's super important, right? It's super important for your family. It's super important for your mental health. It's super important for, for your career, right? So it's hard. It's really hard to, uh, to balance that, that work-life balance, which is why you have to love what you do. If you are um, a corporate lawyer for some reason, and for some reason uh, you love that, you need to, right? If you're in criminal law, you better love it uh, because you're going to be living it. And if if you want to have a family, then, you know, it means that you got to devote yourself to, to those two things and, and you might need, need to, to cut out other things in your life. There's always, always time. Mm -hmm. um, it's just all about ordering your priorities. And, you know, for me, um, you know, the, the 
your job and your family should should be at the top and especially if you're a man you've got to get home you 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 can't fall into this you know um, madman 1960s mentality it it's not just an option or a choice or about balance um, you have to be a a full partner uh, to your family and to your partner um, you know that's just uh that's just something that that has to happen um, these days. You can't uh, fall back into these outdated ways of, you know, dividing things by gender and and um, you know you got to be conscious about that. So I mean, that's my advice. Uh, you got to do what you love. You've got to make sacrifices, and that sacrifice can't be your work because it's too important. It can't be your family because that's too important. Um, it's got to be those six hours you play golf, those three hours you're um, with your fancy baseball friends at the bar, um, those, you know, four hours you're playing Call of Duty uh, on, on your, you know, your Xbox. Like you got to sacrifice something. Those are the things you got to sacrifice, my friend. Well, I really enjoy that advice, especially as a younger person about to enter the profession. It sounds almost like happiness, well-being. It's almost a work ethic in itself. And it's not necessarily something you'll achieve once you get your dream job or where you think you want to be. But it's something that you're going to always have to actively keep working towards. And I really appreciate that you're talking about this now, especially mental health being such um, a hot topic right now and becoming increasingly more prevalent in, in the consciousness of a lot of people. And it's especially relevant for for lawyers and, and law students. So so thank you for that. Yeah, I think what I mean, what's really important, especially when you're starting starting out, right? You just finished law school. Um, you may have taken a year or two off. I mean, I went to Dalhousie, which was which was fantastic. So we had a lot of mature students and mature classmates who were coming from second careers. But you know, I think the majority of law students have you know, done their undergrad, um, maybe done some other education, maybe taken a year or two off. But I mean, you've just come through like a, a decade of school, two decades of school. Um, and it, so it feels like you got to get going. It feels like that, you know, you need to get that summer job. You need to get that article clean job. You need to keep up. You need to put in these 18 uh, hour days. Um, you know, there's big salaries out there. There's, you know, you can make partner at these Bay Street firms. Um, and you got to do it now and you got to do it quickly, but man, life is long. Like the older I get, the, the more I realize that, that we got a long time, man, especially if you're a criminal defense lawyer, like you're going to be doing it because you don't have a pension. You don't have, um, you're not making a lot of money, man. You're not going to retire at, at 60, like all those crown attorneys, your, your retirement plan is, you know, dying while giving a jury address when you're 80, right? That's how criminal lawyers go. And so, you know, when you come out of law school and you're like, you know, under 30, you've got like 40 years uh, of practice. And so it takes you a couple years. If you have to take some time off, if you don't make quite as much money, if you carry debt for a little bit, um, you know, that all might not be ideal. If you don't get that articling job, um, you've got a long time and you've got a long career and there's lots of stuff to do. And, you know, you're it's, it's not wasted time. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you got to really, I think, resist the, the urge to sort of look to who's on your left and on your right and compare yourself to them, especially when you're going into some, you know, some of these more niche areas of law, um, you've got time. So take care of yourself because it's, it's a, it's a marathon of a career. It's not a sprint. Well, I know a lot of listeners out there, law students are really going to appreciate this advice. So that's everything, Michael, that we were going to cover today. 
thanks for coming on the podcast and no in your words thanks for being a friend of the podcast no worries brother nice talking to you you've just been listening to the law school show you can find more episodes on apple podcasts stitcher and now on spotify or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com if you liked what you heard like us again on facebook or follow us on twitter for the latest updates human stories new legal topics and career advancing advice right to your earbuds catch it all here next time on the law school show